So, I remember very, very vividly my very first rated R movie. My grandmother showed it to me, believe it or not. It was the Shawshank Redemption. I don't know if any of you have seen the Shawshank Redemption, but IMDB, the movie rating website, ranked it as the top movie of all time. And I remember it made a pretty big impact on me. I was 13 years old whenever I first saw it. And it was such a beautiful story of life and death, of damnation and salvation, of redemption and loss, that it really stuck with me, even to this day, to the point where I'm preaching a homily about it right now. But there was one line within the Shawshank Redemption that was burned into my head the minute I heard it. It was Andy Dufresne talking to Red. Now Andy, to give you an idea, was wrongfully accused of a terrible crime, thrown in prison, was made, made good friends with the warden, and then they had a falling out, and the warden threw him to three months of solitary confinement. Miserable. Well, after that, he goes up to his buddy, Red, and he says, Red, I need nine feet of rope. And then he starts talking about, you know, how he wants to get out of here and how he dreams about being in the Pacific and Mexico, you know, all of our dreams in the end. And one of the things that he said at the very end, because Red starts to get nervous because he thinks that he's going to lose his life. He thinks he's going to kill himself. Red looks at Andy and he says, Andy, I don't want you talking like this anymore. And Andy said, at the end of the day, it just really comes down to one of two options. Get busy living or get busy dying. That's it. And that has stuck with me for many years. And honestly, I got to say, I thought it was right. I really did. thought it was something you could really stake your life on. Live or die. Life or death. But really, reading this gospel kind of dispels all that. Reading this gospel helps us to understand, it certainly helped me to understand, that life and death is absolutely not mutually exclusive. And what it shows us, what Jesus shows us, is actually they work hand in hand. Our gospel begins today in Caesarea Philippi. To give you an example of what that is, it was basically the Las Vegas of paganism back in the day. Four temples to Roman gods. <clears throat> lots of debauchery, lots of promiscuity, lots of drunkenness, lots of gluttony, and even child sacrifice. What there was over at Caesarea Philippi was a giant pit which they called the pit to the gates of hell where they would throw children, little infants, in there. There was a waterfall, and if blood came up from the pit, it meant that the, child, that the child was not accepted. If blood continued through and they didn't see it, it meant the child was. That is what Jesus is saying to Peter whenever he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. And sure enough, 70 years later, there was an earthquake and that pit was filled for, the re for all of the rest of the time. I was there. I saw it in, in the Holy Land. Very beautiful. That was the battle plan. Excuse me. That was the mission. That's what Jesus said to his apostles. He says that we will destroy the gates of hell. It won't stand a chance against us. That's what he said last Sunday in Sunday's gospel whenever he made the first pope. This Sunday, he doesn't just give us the mission. He gives us the battle plan for how he intends to close these gates. And the apostles, probably eager to hear this plan... Eager to hear how are the gates of Hades going to be shut completely once and for all. We're probably expecting a divine smackdown. 
But that's not what happened. They didn't expect that the divine would in turn be smacked down. But you see, whenever Jesus looked at them and unveiled his plans to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die at the hands of his mortal enemies, I can only imagine how utterly shocked they were. What are you talking about, Lord? You're the Lord. You're supposed to be overtaking Israel with an army, not being overtaken with an army. You're the Lord. You should be doing the smacking down, not getting smacked down. You're the Lord. You should be busy getting busy living and not dying. I can only imagine what was going through their heads, my friends. They were probably asking questions after they heard this plan to go to Jerusalem and die. What is going on here? Why is it that the Lord of all, in speaking of dying, doesn't he know his power? Doesn't he know that he will be protected? Doesn't he know that we're going to have his back? Somebody's got to say something to him. And sure enough, Peter did, in the typical Peter way. God forbid, Lord, you, excuse me, God forbid, Lord, nothing like this will happen to you. To which Peter went on ahead and got the most brutal rebuke he probably ever got in his life. Get behind me, Satan. You are an obstacle to me. You are thinking not as God does, but as a human being does. Interesting. I mean, to me, Peter's using common sense. I mean, he's defending his friend. I don't see what the big deal is. But then again, perhaps I'm just thinking as a human. And with the plan Jesus unfolds, is he does reveal that. that. That is, whenever we think that, is human thinking. You see, my friends, humans, we tend to think in terms of exclusive categories. So whenever we hear of light and darkness, good and evil, life and death, we think that they're on one side or the other. You can't have light and then have darkness. You can't have good and then you can't have evil. You can't have life and you can't have death. But that's not how God works. God allows all of these things to happen because he uses them all. Because my friends, in God, light shines in the darkness. In God, good can come out of evil and in God... Death can lead to life. And that's exactly the mystery that Jesus unfolds for us right here in today's gospel. My friends, he says, whoever wishes to follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, now he will save it. My friends, if we want to embrace life, if we want to suck the marrow out of living, we must first embrace death. And we can see this in everyday life. Guys, if we want a free country, we need men to raise their right hands, die to themselves, and become soldiers. Guys, if we want beautiful families, we need men to get down on one knee, die to themselves, and become husbands. And if we want even a shot, at eternal life. We need men to lay down on the marble floor of the cathedral, die to themselves, and become priests. My friends, there is no greater embrace of death than taking a vow. There is no greater embrace of death than, than promising an oath. There is no greater embrace of death than laying down your life for someone else. 
And that's the beauty of this. Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you want to live a good life, go on ahead and deny yourself because it'll be nice. It'll be good. You'll, you'll be happy. No. He says that whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Not whoever loses his life will save it. No, that's another gospel passage. He's talking about something else. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And in doing this, he's making the point that death is no statue to be adored. That's idolatry. No, guys, death is a chasm to be crossed, a treacherous chasm. And many of us die in the process of crossing it. But the only way we'll ever have the courage to do so, the only way we'll ever have the courage to marry somebody, to become priests or become soldiers, my friends, is if we do it not for ourselves, but for someone else. Guys, no good soldier surrenders his identity and marches amongst a sea of anonymous men for the simple sake of making himself feel good. No good husband gives up the joys and the pleasures of bachelorhood to simply to go get married and become a husband simply for attention. And no good priest surrenders the affection that he could have for a woman or a life lived on his own terms that he surrenders whenever he promises obedience to a bishop just for the sake of self-glorification. My friends, to do that for yourselves is to ultimately fall into the pit of death, to misuse the vow and to lie. So how are we to do this? How are we to take up our cross in following God, knowing that some of us haven't made vows or oaths? Some of us are not married. Some, only one of us here is a priest. What are we supposed to do? What about those of us who have not, who have not pursued that vocation? And it's simple. Each and every one of us have been baptized. In baptism, our parents made the vow for us that we will become true sons and daughters of God. If we live out our baptism, if we come to this church and lie and make it just all about me, just trying to show people that we're holy, show people that we got it all together, show people that we're Catholic, we're not living out our vow. We're not dying. We're trying to live. We're trying to live for ourselves. But if we do what a, man, what, a, what a man does for his bride, what a soldier does for his country, what a priest does for the church. If we live at our baptism, not for ourselves, but for God, my friends, we will do what Christ has asked us to do. We will take up our cross and we will follow him. My friends, the only way that we're ever going to have the courage to cross that chasm of judgment is if we focus on the man on the other side. And at Judgment Day, there will be only one man that matters on the other side, and that man is Jesus. And he gave us the power to trust him in baptism. That's our question. Do we love Jesus enough to meet him at Judgment Day? Do we love him enough to live for him? Do we love him enough to die for him? And so, my dear friends, don't either get busy living or get busy dying. That's the last thing you want to do. No. Follow the words of these holy gospels. Follow the words of Christ, which ultimately says 
that if you want to get busy living, then get busy dying, all for the sake of God.